You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Average Conservationist Podcast, brought to you in partner with 2% for Conservation. 2% for Conservation's mission is to create an alliance of businesses and individuals that ensure the future of hunting and angling by committing their time and dollars to fish and wildlife. 1% of your time plus 1% of your money equals 2% for conservation. 2% helps businesses and people pair with conservation causes to support things that fit what they care about. Whether you're into fishing, hunting, or just getting outdoors, 2% can help you not only start giving back to wildlife, but get certified for it. Getting 2% certified means you've made the same commitment as popular brands like Sitka, Stone Glacier, and Seek Outside in giving at least 1% of your time and dollars back to wildlife. But it's not just for outdoor companies. Breweries, contractors, coffee roasters, and even piano repair companies have earned 2% certification and stand out as leaders in their community for doing so. Businesses that are committed to conservation deserve your business when you shop. Learn more about 2% for conservation at fishandwildlife.org. That's fishandwildlife.org. What's up, everybody? Happy hump day. Uh, I hope that wherever you're listening from, you are able to uh, enjoy some of this beautiful spring weather that we're having. You're getting out. Uh, for many uh, people, turkey season is underway. Uh, and if you're partaking in that, hopefully you're having some success and just getting out and uh, enjoying Mother Nature. Uh, welcome back to the Average Conservationist Podcast, and I'm your host, Marcus Ewing. Today on the podcast, I am joined by Andy Austin, and Andy is a photographer who is uh, based out of Bozeman, Montana, but uh, lives a bit of a uh, nomadic lifestyle. Um, <clears throat> Andy travels all over the world, um, you know, as a photographer, um, shooting a lot of things uh, for outdoor and um, tourism photo uh, or photography, and, and what uh, he means by that is um, you know working with a lot of um, governments and things like that to, to shoot videos um, about tourism in particular um, states or cities or things like that and it's uh, it's Andy's job to really kind of capture uh, the essence and the beauty of you know whatever particular site that he is on um, <clears throat> you know for for Andy 
Uh, he has a super cool, um, you know, background and story that kind of led him uh, to the point that he's at now uh, from being born in Alaska uh, and then at a young age moving to Montana and growing up there. And, you know, for uh, for Andy, you know, the outdoors was something that uh, he certainly enjoyed, uh, you know, growing up and in his youth, but uh, in a little bit different way than um, maybe a lot of um you know, people who grew up in Montana do. Um, Andy was big into into sports, uh, particularly football. Played through high school, played in college uh, at Mon- at Montana State, and you know the kind of traditional time um, when a lot of people are hunting uh, in the fall and uh, you know late summer, early fall. Uh, Andy was busy uh, in the weight room on the football field, and you know that was just something that was a, a priority for him. Uh, but you know, while he was throughout his entire, uh, you know, youth and, and upbringing, um, you know, capturing moments and, and um, you know, documenting, uh, adventures that him and his buddies had or different trips and things that he took with his family, it was always something that he really enjoyed. And I think, uh, as things progressed for him, he got into college, he started taking more pictures and, you know, he, he spent some time post-college, uh, traveling you know around the world really for nine months and he tells us um, some really cool stories about his time there and you know it just it kind of grew into you know a love and a passion and you know here he is now um, I think six years later uh, from really giving it uh, the full-time go and has seen parts of the world that you know likely you and I only dream of um, and does an incredible job of, of documenting uh, those places through the lens of his camera um, you know, being in Montana, uh, in the outdoors and, you know, traveling around as much as he does. I mean, he's lived in his van and, and public lands have, have always been a really important thing for him. Um, so when he was finally in a position, um, from his career and his professional standpoint, um, to, to really be able to give back is when he decided to, um, become 2% certified. And he certainly understands the importance of, you know, public lands and wild places and all that. I mean, it's, uh, it's really part of who he is. So yeah, Andy and I, this, uh, this conversation is filled with a lot of laughs. Um, Andy is just a great dude and, you know, he is, uh, someone who is uh, immensely talented uh, at uh, what he does with the camera. Um, and if you guys uh, have not had a chance to be sure and check out uh, Andy and a lot of the work that he's doing. So episode 97, Andy Austin, uh, you guys are going to enjoy this one. Uh, today's episode is going to be brought to you by Stone Glacier. And, you know, I'm uh, turkey season is just about to start here in Michigan and I will be running the Avail 2200. Um, I used it last year uh, in the Turkey Woods, uh, and it, it's perfect. I mean, the organization is great. Um, you know, it's it's not so big to where it's uh, it gets in the way. Uh, if you're using decoys, you can pack decoys right to the front. Um, you know, you can keep everything organized: calls, some snacks, whatever the case is. Um, everything uh, very accessible, very easy to find. Um, it's the same pack that I run during whitetail season. Uh, and like all things um, Stone Glacier that I've had the experience of using or the opportunity to use, uh, it's just, it's tough as nails. Um, it's, uh, it's something that, you know, whatever my outdoor pursuit is going to be, it's uh, something that I don't leave home without. So 
to stay up to date with all things Stone Glacier, download the Stone Glacier app either on iTunes or Google Play and head over to stoneglacier.com and check out uh, their entire lineup of gear. All right, joining me on the podcast today, I have photographer, 2% certified, Andy Austin. Andy, how are you, man? Doing great. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, no, I'm glad I... Uh, you got introduced uh, a few weeks back, I guess it was, uh, as being 2% certified. And of course, like instantly start following you on Instagram and things like that, knowing that eventually we were going to set up a time to talk. And uh, man, you kind of live this jet setter life, man. So I'm glad that we could finally kind of put some, uh, you know, get our schedules aligned and uh, make this happen. Definitely. I was like walking around town today and I ran into just in like one walk downtown. I ran into three different friends and every one of them was like, oh, you're actually in town. I was like, yeah. Briefly, I'm here for for like a few days, and then I got to go again and and head out. So it's a, it's always nice to be home. I love being home, and I'm at some point I'd actually like to spend more time at home. Uh, look, most people are trying to like get out more, and I I'm like on the opposite spectrum of like trying to actually be in more. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean that's that's part of like you know, the I don't even know if you want to call it a downside, but you know part of the uh, the occupation, right? As a photographer, like you go where you're needed, you go where the shoots are, where whatever, whatever is needed, you know, that's, you're just, you find yourself in those, um, you know, positions where you're not at home very often. Definitely. I mean, I still love it and there's nothing I'd rather do. I don't even know what I would do if I, if I didn't do this. I've, I've thought about it a few times. Like what if I had to get a desk job? I don't, to be honest, know what I would do. So that was like one of the questions I was going to, I was going to ask you at some point here was like, if you weren't a photographer, what would you be doing? You know, because I always wonder, you know, when, I think some people just know, right? With whatever you know their um, you know uh, occupation is, um, and they're just they're head over heels in love with it. It's they can't imagine doing anything else. Like I always try to ask them that question. Like think about it for me. Like what would you be doing, right? Like did you have any other interests, or did you always know in the back of your mind, like yes, photography is what I want to do. It's just something I'm drawn to, and and something I can sink my teeth into. I definitely think this was not the. This was never a path for me. I never thought this is what I would be doing. Uh, I didn't go to school for it. I didn't have any idea that this was going, what I was going to do. And even when I was doing photography while I was still at school a little bit here and there, there, there was never like an idea that I would be one day doing this full time. Um, and actually, a lot of the photographers that I'd like met in my younger days of being a photographer, they all told me that there was actually no money to be made in photography. I should pick a different path. I should not be a photographer. It's a great hobby. Uh, do something else. And that was... That was kind of the, the the vibe that I got from a lot of people, and it was a weird one. So yeah, so I I don't know what I would do honestly. I I graduated and kind of had no idea what I wanted to do. We we just talked about uh, before we got on this. We talked about football a little bit and playing college football. And my life, like I graduated in December, so my season ended, and then like two weeks later, my college ended. And all of a sudden, I was kind of thrown into the world, and I had no clue what to do because of just my whole life was fo- football and school. Yeah. Never anything else. Never any idea what I was going to do. And so I was like thrown into the world, and I, and I was early in my photography days, and I didn't have a lot of clients or anything, but I kind of wanted to travel and try that. So I just kind of said yes to every weird opportunity that came my way for the next nine months. And so I had this wild nine months of, of traveling. Um, really poor and broke, but I did it. <laughs> like hitch, I hitchhiked across Southern Africa for a month. I followed the coffee and cigar route down northern Nicaragua for a little bit. I was in Norway for a little bit. I 
was in Patagonia for a little bit. And then I worked as a guide in Yellowstone for a summer. Um, and then that's ended up, if I wasn't doing this, probably honestly, I'd go back to guiding because I, I really love it. And I've done a handful of summers doing that. And I still occasionally step into guide, but, uh, yeah, I kind of did that. And then I, I ended that nine month stretch of, of crazy wild travels and really fun life. And then I was really poor and I had really no money that <laughs> I kind of lived that life. And uh, then I got a desk job doing social media marketing and PR for Visit Billings, which is a tourism agency in the town that I grew up in. And I hated it. <laughs> I really yeah. did. So I, I, you know, it was really good for me. I learned a lot about tourism and I learned a lot about the industry. Uh, and I met a lot of people that are now my clients. But uh, the job itself was not fun. I also made very little money. I had a closet for an office that was underneath the stairwell. And for a guy who just spent nine months basically living outside, that was not, uh, that was not going well for me. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's got to be tough, right? I mean, even like just, you know, rewind it back even, you know, high school and then, you know, and then into college. Like your everything that you did, you know, especially like sports related was outdoors, right? Always moving, never standing right. still. Uh, again, you know, we talked about it that, uh, you know, the, the life as a college athlete, I mean, we both played football, but it doesn't matter which sport, right? If you're playing, you know, college athletics at, at a high level, like your free time is basically nil, right? And between workouts, practices, classes, you know, trying to get a job to, you know, support yourself or give yourself a little bit of spending money because, you know, let's face it, not everyone is uh, is going to North Carolina or Duke or Alabama. Like, they don't all have these stipends, let's call it. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. and now with the, the NIL deals, I mean, you know, people can, can actually, you know, make some some tangible money um, for them to, to be able to survive on. And that's, that's just not the case. And then, yeah, being thrown into, yeah, essentially uh, storage under a stairwell, like, that's got to be <laughs> tough, man. Yeah. I mean that the, it's funny you mentioned the NIL, the NIL deal because the the whole thing about being able to pay college athletes now or not not paying them necessarily but allowing them to use their name and likeness to get paid. Right. One of what's funny about that is somebody asked me when that got when that got announced and that they were going to do that, and I I was so mad that it came out after I graduated because that actually would have changed my life in college because I would not have gotten paid as a football player. Um, you know, I was going to Montana State. And I was a lineman, so like nobody wants me in their commercials. Uh, so I'm not the quarterback or the running back or anything like that. But but what the thing was is when I started being a photographer when I was in college, because it was like an outlet for me to get out and do something else. Um, and once again, never intended to sell anything. Just kind of started putting photos on Facebook. You know, this is before Instagram. So like putting photos on Facebook and then people being like, wow, that's really good. Um, and then people wanting to, be, wanting to buy them. And I was like, oh, this is really cool. Like, people want to give me money for something that I like to do. Yeah. That's a, a weird concept. So I, I started selling prints, but I, I wanted to build a whole website first. So I built this whole website, spent months of my life designing a logo and getting a website and getting all this stuff together. And then I launched my, uh, my business, which is, of course, Andy Austin Photography. And within three days I had, you know, probably made a couple hundred bucks, which I was stoked about. I could go out to dinner and, and afford a nice meal for once. Yeah. And, uh, I got a call from the compliance officer at the school and he, she was like, Hey, come on in. It's like, Oh, okay. What's, what's this about? And she goes, Hey, so, uh, the NCAA has been made aware of your business. 
selling photos. And I was like, oh. And she goes, yeah, it's a, it's a cool business you got there. And I was like, oh, thanks. And she goes, you can't do that. And I was like, <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean you can't? Like, it has nothing to do with me being a football player. Yeah. She goes, oh, well, you're using your name and your likeness to promote a business. And you can't do that as long as you're an NCAA athlete. Yeah. So I couldn't do it. And so she told me, I asked what I, what I could I do? And she goes, well, you can create a pen name or you can create a business name, work underneath that. So I, I created Peak Photography of Montana and I, I worked under that for the last two years of my eligibility and secretly was selling photos and prints uh, in Bozeman, uh, not under my name. And like, if you go to my, if you went to my website, it was just like a picture of the back of my head. It says, "Hi, I'm Andy," and I, it's full stop. That was it. You know, <laughs> probably was the weirdest thing because, like, as a photographer, as an artist, you're like your name is your kind of your business. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I couldn't use mine, so that that whole thing with like being able to use that now would have been huge when I was in college, just for the sense of not even selling my football prowess, but selling just myself. Well, yeah, and think about you know when when you and I were in college, like there was an Instagram. Right. And to see like the way that that has, you know, really helped people become successful in starting their own business and just, you know, kind of entrepreneurship in general. Um, And then, yeah, I mean, that would have been especially, you know, being involved, like being in Montana. uh, I mean, I feel like there just would have been, yeah, a lot of different things that you could have really played off of that would have certainly uh, allowed for you to have a few more good meals. Yeah. Well, I mean, the funniest thing was one of my top selling images at the time was an image of the football stadium that I had taken after practice one night. So, you know, of course, I had extra access to the stadium. And so I had my camera bag nearby and there was this epic sunset kind of forming. So I just grabbed it and took this photo uh, of the football stadium. And at that time, nobody really had a, a shot of the stadium like that. So people were loving it and like all these boosters were buying photos and all these fans were buying photos, not having any idea they were buying it from a football player. And then I started getting all these emails from people being like, hey, we would love, uh, can you get, can you get a photo of the stadium, but like during a game with fans in it? And I'm sitting here going, well, no, (laughs) it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. Really? It's going to be hard to do that. Uh, so I, I kind of thought of a game plan. So I, I went up before the game and I mounted my tripod up on the film platform and I asked the film guys, I was like, Hey, do you guys mind like watching my camera for the game? And they were like, yeah, we don't care. They're, they're all friends of mine. So they're like, yeah, we don't, we don't really care. So I had a time-lapse start, take a photo every four seconds of the game. And at the end of the game, I had a few thousand photos and I just pulled out my favorite stills of the, of the game and started selling those. So people oh, were like, man. oh, thanks for listening to us. You got the photos of the game. And I'm like, sure. I mean, if, if the quality was good enough, I mean, this is, once again, 10 years ago, so the quality is not what they are now. But I'm like, you probably could zoom in and find me on the field there somewhere. Well, yeah. yeah. It's like, uh, yeah, if you if you look closely here, you see this guy with the pancake block. Yeah. That's, <laughs> so that's the guy you're buying this from. Right, exactly. So where's Waldo? Yeah. No, that's, uh, that's awesome, man. Um, so what was it that, that even made you first pick up a camera? I mean, what um, was it something that you were interested in when you were young and then just kind of dabbled with it and then, you know, kind of walk me through that? Yeah, so like, I, it's it's kind of a weird story in the fence. I, I don't remember when I first picked up a camera because I always had one in my hands, just like always. Growing up, I always had the little point-and-shoot film camera, just, you know, automatic exposure, automatic everything, just point-and-shoot, click, yeah. you know, 35-millimeter film, take it over to Costco and get it developed and... <laughs> You know, the good old days. Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, I would just do that with all my friends. And, like, I grew up on the outskirts of Billings. And so we had a lot of shenanigans and 
go-karts and, uh, you know, mountain bikes and skateboards and rollerblades and the whole work. So we would always, you know, build jumps and do stupid things because we were kids growing up in, you know, in the outskirts of Billings. Like we didn't have the, we couldn't go to the mall like a lot of other kids did because, you know, we were 15 miles away. So we would just do stupid things. And uh, I was always the one that documented them, right? So I always just took photos. I was always out there. And I remember, like, particularly, I'd love to find these images somewhere in my library of stuff. But I took photos of, like, my friend. And we, we faked a, uh, an accident with the bike where, like, he splayed out, like, on the concrete. And we, like, put ketchup all over him. And I took all these photos, you know. And I was like, what are we doing? But I don't know. Uh, so, yeah. So, like, I always grew up doing that. And then, you know, like, the early 2000s when, like, the Sony Cybershot uh, digital camera came out which I think was like four megapixels I got one of those when I was a kid and and uh, just continued to always take photos just loved I loved that like it wasn't the fact that I loved photography it's just like I loved documenting and sharing that yeah and then you know I grew up traveling quite a bit uh, my family owns a, a, an adventure travel company so I grew up traveling with them a lot and we'd go and build trips for their company and I would be with them and so I always would bring a camera with me and it just kind of developed into I took photos to document things that I was seeing so that I could further share them. Yeah. I always had like a terrible memory. So I just trying to be trying to like remember things and de- like incidences and, and details about a certain event was always tough. So I just show people photos and it wasn't until 2010, uh, my dad and I took a trip to uh, Southern Africa to, to Namibia and we were there with this bicycle nonprofit that we were running. Um, and I was really excited to go. Um, and, uh, so I, I got had a hand-me-down camera from my dad, a Canon 30D with a pretty cheap, like kit telephoto lens on it. And I was really excited because I thought of myself as a photographer and had no idea what I was doing. It was like, I was shooting full auto mode just, but I thought of myself as a photographer. Yeah. I was in college. I was like a freshman or sophomore in college and I'm all excited because I'm like, every photographer's dream to go on safari in Africa and take photos of lions and elephants and giraffes and things. And so I went and I spent a whole month there with my dad uh, working on this project. And then we went on some safaris and things and and I got all excited to take all these photos and I got back and the photos were horrible. Like they were like half of them were out of focus. They're blurry because I didn't know how to like bump the aperture or the ISO up. I didn't know how to compensate for low light situations. I didn't know what I was doing at all. And it was that moment in 2010 that I was like, I decided, I told myself that I was going to learn how to take photos. I was going to learn the, the technical side of photography and not just point and click. Uh, just for the sole purpose of taking better images that better captured the scenes that I was seeing out in the world. How long did that take before, you know, from, from let's say you, you, this all happened in 2010 to where you know, you felt really comfortable in, you know, any type of situation or setting uh, environment, um, you know, to be able to capture a good photo. It took a while uh, because, I, you know, I started my business in 2012 uh, with the prints and things like that when I was in college. And looking back on those photos, they're pretty horrendously bad. I thought I was ready. I definitely wasn't ready to start a business, but I tell a lot of young photographers that trial by fire is the best way to learn. Yeah. Just throw yourself into situations and put yourself in a situation that push you as a photographer because you're only going to learn by putting yourself into situations you don't know how to shoot it. Off-camera lighting or food photography or whatever it is. The only way you can learn how to do that is by putting yourself in that situation, doing it. So, you know, I don't think I was too skilled of like being able to really take clients until 
I would say after I left my desk job, um, when I was in my desk job, I started to really pick that up. So 2015, okay. I'd say when I started to really kind of turn that corner in my business side of, of getting photos that I felt like properly captured the essence of the places I was going to. So what type of, of I mean, would you call, what type of photography is it that you, I guess, specialize in? It's kind of, it's, it's hard to really pin down. Uh, I consider myself an outdoor, a commercial outdoor and tourism photography. Okay. Uh, because I do a lot. I think tourism photographer is probably the one that describes me the best. Uh, but a lot of people don't know what that is. And so, you know, I get hired by a lot of like government tourism boards around the world to come and document whatever tourists would do. Right. So my job is to kind of pretend to be a tourist, but with a camera and the, thing about that is you have to be really kind of well-rounded as a photographer. You can't just be an outdoor landscape photographer. You can't just be a, a, a portrait photographer. You have to be able to shoot food. You have to be able to light a hotel room. You have to be able to shoot that landscape shot. You have to be able to shoot a lifestyle shot. You have to be able to shoot, you know, kind of all genres of photography are wrapped into one, you know, big genre. What is your favorite part about the, the you know, the, the tourism or the outdoor uh, style photos that you're taking? Honestly, I love, and I always have, it's just like what I was talking about earlier, is I love sharing it with people. I love sharing the outdoors. I love sharing really cool places. I mean, my, I think my really my specialty is, is shooting places that are lesser known, lesser visited. Um, I spent a lot of time in eastern Montana, you know, being from Billings. I kind of grew up in the border between eastern and western Montana. Yeah. And I love eastern Montana. It gets a bad rap from western Montanans as being just – you know, a lot of the jokes go around that's West Dakota, you know, it's flat, <laughs> flat prairie land, but I love it, you know, and I love a good challenge. Yeah. You know, just a few weeks ago, I did a shoot for Travel Wisconsin, where they sent me into Wisconsin in the dead of winter, and they're like, all right, go have fun. And it, there was an ice storm. Uh, I didn't know that could happen, where it rains ice. Oh, yeah. That's not a thing that happens in Montana. Welcome it, to the Midwest, you know, yeah. It, it gets lower than 32, and it snows. It doesn't, yeah. It doesn't rain ice. <laughs> yeah, it uh yeah, the Midwest, man. We've got it all here, including I said I said the photos of the clients and they're like, "We're really impressed with what you were able to do with the fact that you were it was raining ice on you." I had to like I had to break off sheets of ice off my backpack after shooting <laughs> one of the days. Great. So, obviously, we we touched on it earlier and you know, you talked about uh your travels um, you know, right after graduation there that post grad, you know, 9 months that you took kind of seeing the world. What, you know, how did that, like that experience kind of shape you as a photographer and, you know, kind of, I'd imagine it had a, a certainly a, a big influence um, in, in what you wanted to do and kind of how you wanted to capture photos as well. Definitely. And I, and I talk about that a lot with, with young photographers when they ask me, you know, how do I get to your point? How do I get to where I'm making a, a decent living, doing what you love to do, traveling the world, taking photos? It's the dream, right? For yeah. a lot of photographers. And I'm doing it. And so there's all these steps that I took that I did not know I was taking that led to where I was, right? And so that nine months of travel right out of college were huge. And they were so important to my career. At the time, I didn't know it. At the time, I was like trying to have fun, just a dumb, young, dumb 23-year-old who was looking to try and explore the world a little bit. But my whole perspective on life changed during that time. Um, having grown up as I said, with my, my folks owning a, an adventure travel business, um, I grew up traveling, but what I call whiteboard traveling, which is you show up to a place, 
you know, maybe it's another country and there's somebody standing there at the airport and they have a whiteboard with their name on it. And then you don't think for the, like, the rest of the week, yeah, right? right? You just kind of yeah. like show up, somebody, some guide somewhere is like, cool, you're my responsibility, let's go, right? And it's like relatively safe, it's organized, there's no chaos, uh, and that's that's that, right? Um, and then that trip to, to Southern Africa that I took right out of college, um, where I kind of ended up hitchhiking for a month, that was the first experience I'd ever had with showing up to a country with no plan and I was there for a month and I did not know what I was doing and I had like a friend of mine picking up at the airport that I'd met on a previous trip and he was like what are you gonna do and I was like I don't know uh, I'm gonna figure this out <laughs> it's gonna go <laughs> so I was like I've got a camera and I'll have camera will travel um, and I just kind of was like calling safari lodges and things and you know the lucky thing for me was this is this is once again pre pre big Instagram days like now right where now, I think if you were to call like a bunch of safari companies and say, hey, do you need photo like photos? They'd be like, oh, no, we get 100 of those messages a week from people on Instagram who yeah. want to come photograph for us. But once again, this is before those times. So I'm just calling friends of friends of friends who know somebody and asking if they need photos and saying, cool, I'll figure it out. And they're like, if you can get here, we could use some photos. So I'm just going around my for the whole month, meeting lots of really awesome people really just made a huge impact on my life because at that point I got really addicted to complete chaos uh, in my life where now I just, I love it. Like I love visiting a country where I don't even have a hotel booked. I don't have a, I don't have a plan when I set foot. Like if I'm, if I'm not doing a shoot, so like if I'm doing a shoot for a company, it's a different story. Yeah. You know, if I, if I'm going to a place and showing up to a country and just being like, all right, this is new. Where am I? Let's figure it out. You know? Yeah. I mean, as a 23 year old, I mean, thinking back, it's a while ago for me, but I don't, I mean, I don't know if I would have had the stones to do it, to be honest. Right. <laughs> I mean, especially like, like, it's not like, you know, you know, living in Montana and you're like, oh, I'm going to go, uh, you know, like out East somewhere. Right. And like, I'm just going to like, or like hike the Appalachian Trail or something like that, right? Like you're like, no, I'm, we're gonna we're gonna kick things off in, in Southern Africa, right? And then you know, uh, it was a bold strategy to start for sure. Um, <laughs> and I, it wasn't intended to be like that. I had intended to kind of have a little more things planned and have some things set up before I left. And then a lot of things just kind of fell through last minute that I had planned. And even the I was like, well, if I can have my first week planned, I'll be great. And I was gonna head to this lodge to photograph this lodge. Um, and so I, a, a friend of mine picked me up at the airport. I stayed on his couch for a night and I was supposed to leave the next morning to this lodge. And I got a phone call that was like, Hey, the, the car that was supposed to come pick you up to bring you to this lodge just got hijacked and has been stolen. So that's not happening. And I was like, all right, that's, you know, so I don't know if I would have had the stones to do it, like straight up how it ended up turning out. Yeah. Um, but just kind of went with it and it worked out. So <laughs> then it's, uh, it's been a, it's been a ride ever since. I mean, like you said, it was a bold strategy, but it, I mean, it certainly paid off, right? I mean, look, look where you're at now. Right. Well, and I was just like down in Chile for the last, uh, the last month of March and I had planned the first half of it. Um, my girlfriend was with me for the first half and she definitely likes a little more planning than I do. 
Um, so there, there needs to be at least some sort of structure in place. Yeah, right, when right. We leave. So, so we had the first two weeks. I was like, all right, it's planned. We're going to go down. I'm going to photograph for this company down there um, in this uh, in Torres del Paine National Park. And then we did that for like a week. Then the second company I was supposed to photograph for just uh, kind of ghosted us. They canceled the plan the day they were supposed to pick us up. So we just kind of said, all right, we're around here for a week. Let's see what we can get up to and have some fun. We did. We ended up tracking pumas in Torres del Paine, which was awesome. Saw six of them, uh, which was incredible. And so we did that. And then my girlfriend left. I flew to a completely different city into a place I'd never been and booked the hostel upon arrival and booked a bus, like basically got a bus ticket at the airport uh, for people who didn't speak any English. And my Spanish is pretty rough. So I was like hoping that I'm getting the right bus ticket, get on a bus, go to the next town over, you know, half an hour away, make it walk from the bus station to this hostel I was staying at and get to this hostel. And I was ended up being like, I was in an attic uh, that didn't have a lock on it. So oh, I had like the, they put like the biggest guy on like the sketchiest stairs to try and it was like a ladder stair system that they were like, yeah, let's put this giant six, five bohemian of a man just to like put him upstairs, you know? Uh, so <laughs> did that. Uh, and then I just kind of, I, I was supposed to work for a company there and then they kind of ended up ghosting me while I was there too. And it's kind of a Chilean thing. Okay. We're like, everything's pretty carefree there. And if things don't go according to plan, they just kind of don't. Uh, and you, you see that a lot with businesses that like, just don't open ever. Really? You know? and you're like, all right, the hours on Google say you're supposed to be open this time for lunch. And it's quite often they're not. <laughs> so wow. you just kind of go about things. But I mean, now I'm eight years into doing this and that doesn't even phase me. I mean, not at all. And, uh, I had like during that time that the client goes to me, my, uh, I had my birthday. Okay. So I'm like having my birthday 8,000 miles from home, knowing nobody during that life. And, uh, I'd actually met some German guys at the gin distillery in a town like 500 miles away. And I ran into them in the streets of this town and I was like, what are you guys doing? They're like, I don't know. It's like, let's go get some beers. Like we'll have some beers. And then uh, I was like, what are you guys doing on Monday? And they're like, wow, we don't know. And I'm like, cool, well, let's figure something out. And they suggested like this crazy hot spring they'd heard about that's a couple hours away. So I had to find a, figure out how to get a transport there and, you know, get a taxi there and get a taxi back and do that life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, man, this is incredible. I mean, I'm always super envious of people who, I don't even think it's necessarily like that they have the means to do it. They just, they make it a priority to do yeah, it right and sure. and obviously uh you know where you're at now in your career it's it's more um you know career based than you know just on a whim like oh we're we're going to go to Argentina or Chile for for a month or something like that right i mean that's i mean people certainly do it but totally. you know if 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 it's going to be kind of funded by work it's it's a little bit kind of i guess uh socially accepted uh, a bit more but totally. Yeah, but to to have those, I mean, like I said, I'm, I'm always super envious of people who who do those kinds of things because, I mean, I've traveled like like this much, right? Like just a tiny bit, and like I feel like I've seen some really cool things. But then, you know, like uh, like one of my best friends, he was the best man in our wedding. Like he spent a month, or no, excuse me, he spent like six months in Argentina, like right after he graduated college. Was like, yeah, I'm just I, something I've got to do, right? Yeah. And yeah, like he's you know he bounced around Europe for a while at one point, like. Yeah, like he just—that's just kind of in his nature, and uh, yeah, I, I always, I, I always love hearing stories and things like that for people who do that. Yeah, I met a lot of folks, especially in Chile, that I met a lot of people 
who were very young. I met a lot of Europeans who were like 18, 19 years old, who were like fresh, just, you know, having kind of a gap year type of thing. Yeah. And we're just basically just planning on traveling for a year. And that's what they were going to do. You know, it was kind of like, let's go travel. And, and, uh, they're living on shoestring budgets. And like, I'm very thankful that, you know, I'm eight years into this and I do not have to live on a shoestring budget anymore, which definitely makes it a lot more comfortable for the, the kind of crazy like life of travel where sometimes things do get a little expensive because maybe I should have booked the hotel three months ago and I'm booking it the day that I'm actually showing up. Uh, and that can get a little pricey sometimes. So, yeah. you know, I'm thankful now that I, I have the opportunity because when I first started traveling, I definitely wasn't that way, you know? Yeah. And if I was in my first years of traveling, like if I had to drive to Denver to save a couple hundred dollars in an airline ticket, that then would fly me from Denver to Edmonton to Iceland to Amsterdam to Morocco to save like 500 bucks. I was taking that flight oh, you yeah. know? just because I wanted to get there and I couldn't afford like the, the direct leg that would have saved me three days of travel, you know? So what's your, the fav- your favorite place that you've uh, been able to visit you know, while working? Yep. I, I think that I've been asked that question a lot in my life and it's always been nearly impossible to answer. I have, I have like a list of favorites for sure. Uh, but I went to a place last year, May of 2021, um, on a, on a shoot. Uh, and I, I finally was like, this is actually, I think this might be it. So it was actually that there was the country of Georgia Okay. and it blew me away. It was so I was working with a Georgia tourism board, um, travel Georgia, and they were working on a kind of an assignment thing with, um, uh, USAID, which is like the United States funding of various countries. Yeah. Um, so they were working together and they brought me over there to do this photo shoot and it kind of checked all the boxes for me. You know, I have like a lot of boxes to check when I'm traveling of, what do I like to see and what do I like to do? And it's like, well, I like mountains a lot, obviously. Yeah. I like to do really cool stuff in mountains, uh, which Georgia's got the highest mountains in the earth. It's got the Caucasus, uh, which are incredible, just epic. I mean, very much like Switzerland. It looks like Switzerland. Uh, but then the, the factor number two is price, and it is crazy affordable compared to a lot of Europe or a lot of those. I mean, Georgia's really like it's it's it borders Asia and Europe. It's really Central Asia. Yeah. But, you know, if you talk to the young people in Georgia, they consider themselves Europeans. Talk to the old people, they're like, we're Soviets. <laughs> so, um, you know, uh, it's an interesting it's an interesting kind of mix of people. But, no, they have incredible food. They have incredible culture. Super friendly. Super nice. Great mountains. Really affordable. Um, just kind of checked a lot of those boxes. If there's... The only thing that's a little bit tricky is there's not a lot of tourism infrastructure there. So okay. uh, it's a little tough with that. But um, because I was working with the tourism board, it was fine because we had transport everywhere and stuff like that. But I'd imagine as somebody who wasn't working with the tourism board, it would be a little little tougher than to go to like Western Europe, to go to Switzerland and just be like, well, I'm just flying. I'll catch the train and be in the next you know village wherever I want to be. Or you just, you know, it's easy to get around. Buses, right. trains, public transport. And in Georgia, it's like, you might be on a dirt road for eight hours to try and get to the, the, to the city you're, you don't want to be in. Yeah. Have you ever found yourself uh, in a country or situation where you were like, eh, this is a bit dicey, right? Like where you just maybe didn't feel safe, let's say. You know, there's only been a few times um, in my life that I've, I've felt unsafe. 
I, I mean, I'm as, as I said, I'm a six foot five, two hundred and seventy pound white guy. Like, yeah, I think that certainly helps, right? I'm not like a huge target, which is really nice, yeah. you know. Because yeah. especially if, if I'm in, I, I really don't worry if I'm in tourist areas, you know. Like if I'm in like Paris or Barcelona or something, and a lot of people are like, you know, watch pockets, don't get pickpocketed. I'm so yeah, like I do, and I, I'm very cautious, I'm very careful. But at the same time, like if I'm a pickpocket. Am I going to pickpocket the giant dude over here or am I going to pickpocket like somebody else? Yeah. Oh, like, yeah. Like, because if you do get caught, do you really want this guy beating down on you versus somebody else? Yeah, someone right? like my size beating down yeah. on you, right? <laughs> so it's like, yeah. You know, I don't, I don't worry too much. Uh, the, the scary situations I've been in life, I've definitely have put myself into more than anything. There's never been a situation where I'm like in another country where it's like, oh, man. I don't like this country. I shouldn't be here kind of situation. But like every sticky situation I've gotten into abroad is because I did something stupid. Um, like I was in, uh, I was in the country of Jordan, which is definitely one of my favorites. And Jordan is super, 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 probably one of the safest countries I've ever been to. Like the nicest people, probably the safest place. Um, just incredible, uh, incredible people, incredible place. But that was also the place I had an M16 pointed at my face um, but that was once again, my fault because I, I had accidentally broken into the Roman Citadel. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, normal things like that, that was my fault. And I was with a Jordanian guy and I was with my buddy, Corey, uh, also from Montana. And we, uh, we were hiking and around Amman, we we're like walking around the biggest city, you know, and our Jordanian friend was like, Oh, we should go to the Citadel. Cause it looks over the whole city. It's, it's beautiful up there. Um, it's this big hike, like just up this big kind of mountain in the middle of the town. We're like, oh, sure, that sounds great. And so we start walking up. It's our first night in Jordan, and we're there for a month. And we start walking up this hill. And we run into a Jordanian guy who is all excited to see us. And, you know, because he's like, Americans, Americans? Like, yeah. And he was like, you know, like, welcome to Jordan, welcome to Jordan. Because they're always like very excited to see Americans. Um, and so we're like, oh, thanks. I appreciate it. Uh, and then he tells our buddy, sorry. He's like, hey, you know, don't go in the main entrance to the Citadel. There's a there's a local entrance that all of us use. Basically, all you do is you just cut, cut up this way, and then you crawl through the fence uh, to get in. And sounds, then you'll just, sounds plausible. It's like, it's like, otherwise, you have to go all the way to the backside of the Citadel, and you don't want to do that. Like It's way short. It's like a shortcut. Just go this way, crawl through the fence, you'll be fine. So you have like, you know, my big ass crawling through this fence, uh, almost got stuck, crawl through, <laughs> make it. And then we spent like half an hour, it was nighttime. And so we spent like half an hour, like watching the sunset, nightfall. It's beautiful up there. The Citadel's awesome. And then we had been up there for, you know, half hour or so. And we kept saying to ourselves, like, wow, there's, it's wild there's nobody here. That's just crazy that, you know, of a town of whatever it is, millions of people that are there, that nobody's at the Citadel right now, just us. And then we're like, well, we should leave. Uh, and so we're like, well, our car's on the other side. So actually it's, it's easier if we just go out the main entrance. We'll just exit that way. Yeah. And that seemed like a great idea at the time. So as we're walking out the exit, um, we did not know the Citadel was closed because they close at night and the tourist police that guard it did not know we were in the Citadel. Uh And you can imagine their surprise seeing three guys just walking out of the Citadel towards the exit and so they came running guns drawn at us uh and i'm just like the only thing my you know favorite defense mechanism is just hands raised and just yelling stupid american stupid american stupid american <laughs> stupid american 
you know, and that usually is enough to deter a situation because he, you know, especially in a place like that, they don't really want to cause an inc- like an international incident. Right. Especially with Jordan, Jordan and the U.S. government have a very good relationship, so it's like you know, it's not a yeah. not a time and place. So they they bring us in for questioning and they kind of interrogate us in their little hut thing they had. And they, I have my camera, so they go through my whole camera, look at all the photos I took that night, make sure we weren't in there doing something nefarious like graffitiing or you right. know, vandalism or anything like that. So they ended up calling, and this is all in Arabic, so I had to get the translation from our Jordanian friend there. Uh, so they, they ended up um, uh, basically calling the police to come get us and to bring us to jail. So they had it on speakerphone, so I got the translation, but they basically was like, they were telling the police come get these guys, put them in jail. They deserve to be in jail because uh, they broke into the Citadel. And I guess on the other side, the police were like, they're just stupid tourists. Let them go. Don't, <laughs> we're not, we're not going to come get them. Just let them go. Like let them off of the warning. They're probably terrified. Uh, you know, just, just it's fine. And there was like a 20 minute conversation of this guy trying to convince the police that they needed to come get us and that we were dangerous criminals basically. Yeah. a threat. Uh, <laughs> so, Eventually, like they let us go, uh, which was which was for the best. But uh, it's a lot of situations like that that I, you know, I'd, yeah, I get myself into. That it's not it's not necessarily the country's fault. It's it's always mine. It's always Andy's. It's it's always me, man. <laughs> so, <clears throat> you know, growing up uh, in Montana, there was the outdoors a big part of growing up, you know, hunting, fishing, or just, I mean, you said, you know, you told us what your parents did there. So, I mean, what did the outdoors look like to you kind of growing up? Yeah. So like the outdoors for me growing up is nothing like it is now for me. Yeah. Um, you know, I grew up in the outdoors. I grew up traveling. I grew up hiking. I grew up backpacking with my family. I grew up fishing. You know, I grew up doing a lot of those things. Um, I did not grow up hunting. And I think a part of that is because, so like I, I was born in Alaska and I moved to Montana when I was four, and my dad was, you know, he was a big game hunter in Alaska. You know, he has a, a big giant Kodiak bear on his wall, and he used to hunt a moose every year, and just, you know, normal Alaska things, and fishing up there, and, and doing that sort of stuff. Um, and so he was a little bit burned out on it when he moved to Montana. Also, he was like, the animals are much smaller here. Uh, <laughs> so he was kind of unintrigued by it, comparatively to like Alaska hunting and fishing. Um, so... You know, and then and then with football, my falls were always so taken that we didn't really hunt much uh, growing up at all. Like I didn't I didn't hunt at all growing up, um, and my dad didn't really hunt at all growing up when I was growing up. And then we did go fishing, and as I said, we went hiking, we went backpacking a lot, we did all sorts of things. I was actually probably the least adventurous person in my family. Really, I I liked the outdoors, but it wasn't my jam. Like I wasn't my priority. Football was my priority. School was my priority. Things like that. Loved it, but. You know, I would I would do like maybe one backpacking trip a year. I'd do a handful of hikes a year, uh, do a lot kind of that kind of stuff. But it really wasn't until college that the outdoors kind of became an escape for me. So because of the regimented football life, every you know every second of every day you're being told where to go, what to do, where to stand. Yeah. The outdoors kind of became like the escape from that, to where I could go hiking and I could go you know do those sort of things whenever I had a free, a free moment as I was going out into nature. Um, you know, I also helped out was in Bozeman, which is just like the Mecca of the outdoors, you know, right. it's, it's like, there's so much happening around here. And Billings is, there's a lot of outdoor activities, but there's not a lot of outdoors men in Billings hunting. There is, but hiking and stuff like that wasn't really a big deal for most Billings people. 
Um, yeah, and so then it wasn't until after I graduated from football and school that my dad started to get back into hunting, and then when he started to get back into hunting is when I, I started in the last handful of years um, getting into hunting, and we do a lot uh, a lot of, of uh, waterfowl hunting. Okay. And we do deer hunting as well, but waterfowls are, are definitely our jam, um, and uh, ducks and geese, and so... That's uh, that's become a lot. really it's kind of new for me and and you know it's uh, it's not new for my dad but it's like he's really getting back into it again after taking a long hiatus. Yeah, and it's almost like it's not even like it's new to you the actual like the act of actually doing it, but like just hunting in general, right? Like, isn't new to you? Um, you know, being something that that you grew up in, and it's always um, it's always interesting to me to kind of hear how people were introduced to it, right? Like. I would imagine, you know, at least kind of my preconceived notion was, you know, assuming you grew up in Montana, right? I was like, oh, he's probably, he's been hunting forever, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, totally. then we get to talking and you're like, yeah, I played, you know, we, we started talking about football and I was like, oh, well, this guy, there was certainly a stretch in there where he, he didn't have time to hunt, right? Totally. So I, I kind of wondered sure. what that looked like. Yeah, I remember in high school, a lot of my teammates would go hunting. Uh, they would get up, you know, before football and before school and go hunting at sunrise or whatever. And that was, that would definitely happen. It was harder. It was definitely harder and it wasn't many people doing it, but there were guys who did it. And I was like, man, I'm exhausted enough just doing football in school. I don't know how you guys are doing hunting on top of this right now. Um, and then in college, yeah, like pretty much none of my teammates, even though a lot of my teammates were from Montana and were hunters, it just wasn't a priority during football because we couldn't just, you know, can't get away. Don't have time. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's absolutely the truth. So, you, you know, you, you have the photography business, um, you know, hunting the outdoors. It's not something that's that's new to you, but your own personal pursuits, you know, hand, you know, five, six years ago. At what point did did conservation kind of become um, a bit more of a centerpiece for, for what it is that you're doing? You know, I think that conservation, honestly, has been a centerpiece for as long as I can remember for me personally even growing up and even as i said i wasn't that big of an outdoorsman but i also was like very outspokenly pro public lands and things like that and just learning about it you know from friends and from family and things like that um but then especially once it came time to being a photographer um and then realizing that my my life is made out in public lands yeah and you know i lived in a van for well i've been on and off for six years but i lived in a van full-time for two years and I lived on public lands, you know, for, for two of those years. Right. Yeah. And so public lands became not only my, my lifeblood, my work, but actually like where I was literally living <laughs> and I just love them, you know, and I loved the idea of public lands. I love the idea of conservation. Um, and like the more I could learn about it, the more I could just kind of be a sponge into it. And I mean, I'm still, still learning. I'm still, still learning a lot about it and still learning a lot about hunting. I'm still learning a lot about everything, uh, as I think we all are. And if anybody thinks they have the answers, uh, <laughs> I think that's it. But yeah, no, that's, that's certainly the beauty of, of the outdoors, just kind of in general, right? Is it's this never ending process. Like you're always learning something. I mean, even, you know, the best, you know, uh, waterfowl hunters or the best, you know, elk hunters or, or whitetail mule deer, whatever the case is, right? Like, they're they don't get a deer every year they don't get a deer every time they go out right like there's there's you always are constantly learning something new and then even if you get to the point 
where you feel you have a good grasp on something, uh, you, you know, kind of let's talk about like a specific species, right? You have a good idea of how the animal moves and everything that goes into it, right? And then it's very easy to pivot and be like, okay, now I'm going to hunt this animal, right? Totally. And then it's like this whole new ball game and it's a right. whole new set of things that you need to learn. And it's just like ever evolving for someone. And, and it's, yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. It really is. No, for sure. And I think that's where I, I really love it because it is still fairly new and fairly fresh to me. And so it's this fun kind of other aspect of my life that is, I'm learning so much on the daily, you know, and I, every, every season I'm learning more and every, every year I'm learning more. And it's, it's fun because, you know, I've, I get asked all the time, like, do you photograph hunting stuff? And I said, no, because hunting's for me. Yeah. And I, I actually love keeping those separate you know, like I've done, I've done some hunting photo shoots before. I've done a handful and I've done fishing photo shoots and stuff like that. Um, but for the most part, like if I'm going hunting, I'm, it's cause I'm going hunting Yeah. Uh, and I'm not going to be there to take photos and stuff like that. Um, you know, it's, it's really in like, even, even my passion for hard for hunting even just started with wanting to spend more time with my dad. Um, you know, and, and, uh, to be able to share a cup of coffee and a cigar in the morning in the duck blind and bullshit and tell stories and, you know, and that's what I love about duck hunting is like, you're not, you're not really stealth. You yeah. Know? You don't have to worry about your scent. Yeah. There's so many like benefits to, to just kind of bird hunting in general, except for Turkey where you have to, you know, sit still. But like, yeah, like if you're out, you know, upland hunting or waterfowl hunting, like you can, you can chew the fat, right? Like while you're sitting there waiting. Social, it's a sport. It's a social sport. Yeah, absolutely. You know? And you're not like, it's, it's, it's definitely not as like active as like elk hunting or like, quiet and 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 more stealthy you're like bullshitting and all of a sudden these ducks fly in you're like oh get out <laughs> yeah like, exactly time to go to work uh, but yeah i mean that's really where my my passion for it really started with just kind of like wanting to spend more time with my dad and then kind of took off from there and now i love it um and i and i still love spending time with my dad and doing it that way and but uh it is it's like a really it's kind of like a ritual for us to go and you know, have a seven o'clock in the morning coffee and a cigar and sit in the duck blind and catch up on life. And then, you know, hopefully bring some birds home. Yeah, no, that's, that's, uh, I, I love hearing stuff like that where, you know, for, you know, they're enjoying it for, for a lot of reasons other than, you know, what they're actually out there doing, right? Like sure. you got into it because it was, it was a way to spend more time with your dad, to connect with your dad, um, just to get away from the hustle and bustle of everything else. Right. And like you said, a cup of coffee, cigar, watch the sun come up, you know, watch the world kind of come alive and just enjoy things. And that's that's one of the beauty things about, you know, whether it's hunting or fishing or really any type of outdoor recreating is those moments like that. Right. Like you can't really explain it to someone who, who hasn't kind of experienced something similar to that. But it, uh, it's something that in 10, 20, 30 years from now, like that's going to be your memory of duck hunting, right? It's going to be like those cups of coffee, those early mornings. Sure. It's not going to be like, oh, we limited out to that, you know, that day, right? Yeah. Like, it, I mean, it, it's kind of a, a rendition of a advice that one of my coaches gave me when I was playing football. And he said, you know what? You're not going to remember the score of the game, no. you know? You know, you might, not even wonder if, you might not even remember if you won or lost, you know? You're going to remember the moments in the locker room with your buddies doing stupid stuff, road trips you know, and like road trips, and hotels. Yeah. Yep. You know, doing, doing like just crazy stuff on like 12 hour bus rides, you know, having to go play somebody or whatever. And it's the same, it's the same concept of hunting. 
you know, yeah. as you said, like you're not gonna remember the limit out. Like, yeah, I mean, if you're doing like an elk hunt, you're gonna remember like if you got like a huge monster bull. But you know, it's like the you remember the little moments. You know, the camp, like the nights in camp. You know, like uh, a few years ago, my dad and I were we're pheasant hunting and we got a couple of chucker as well. And like one of my favorite memories from that trip was we went camping afterwards. And we just kind of uh, plucked one and threw it in the campfire pit and and uh, roasted it up with some bacon fat and salt and pepper and you know just uh, just, like like a kings. Hell, just a hell of a meal and it was just like fun to sit around with my dad and you know sit around the campfire and eat what we just harvested and and uh, and do it that way. But like I I don't remember like you know how many pheasants we got that day or how many chucker we got that day, but I do remember that moment. You know. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's what it's all about. Absolutely. So how was it that you learned about 2% for conservation? Um, through, uh, have you, um, have you spoken to Paul Kemper at all yet? I have not. I know the name, but I've not spoken to him. He's a, uh, he's a force to be reckoned with. Uh, if, hi Paul, if you're listening. Uh, so Paul is, uh, is an old friend of mine and he's actually, uh, he's, well, he's how I heard about it even years ago, but then now he's dating, uh, or now, sorry, not dating. He's engaged to and getting married to in June, um, my girlfriend's sister. Okay. So yeah, so there's uh, a little bit of the, that. And then, so when he first told me about it years ago, um, I think I was in one of my first years of, of being a photographer and I thought it sounded awesome, but I was also like, once again, I was, I was really just trying to make ends meet at the time. And my, my primary focus was every second of every day was like, how do I put, how do I put fuel in the tank? Cause I, I wasn't paying rent. I was living in a van, but I was, I wasn't making a lot of money. And, uh, you know, the van was constantly breaking down. And so, um, and it was funny as I actually, I kind of, uh, and I think Paul had actually described it to me as, you know, donating time and money or, you know, kind of things like that. But I think I kind of just like heard money and I was like, I'm terrified uh, of <laughs> trying to give up the few pennies I have. But then a, a couple of years has gone by and uh, and then Chelsea actually joined before me. My girlfriend joined before me. Um, and then when she joined, I was like, OK, I need to I need to get back on this because now I'm in a I'm in a much better position in my life. It is very important to me. It's it's, it's even more important to me now than it was then um, to put my money where my mouth is, you know, and I, I have a big mouth. So, you know, it's, it's uh, <laughs> I gotta, I gotta put my money where that is. Right. So it was, uh, it was a natural fit, obviously. And then yeah. Jared and I got together for beers and to talk about it. And then I think we ended up just BSing world war two history for like an hour and a half instead of actually talking about anything else. So <laughs> Jared's great at that, man. I mean, that man is just this wealth of, of knowledge and information about, Obviously yeah. conservation, but a ton of other random shit as well, right? Like like you said, like him and I have gotten down some rabbit holes before. We're you know like fifteen minutes in, we're like, wait a second, what what were we talking about before we even yeah. you know got here? That was here? definitely how beers went for sure. Yeah. So, what organizations are you are you uh, giving back to and working with? Yeah, so I am doing Wild Montana. Um, that's that's a big one for me um, because. Uh, you know, I wanted to keep it local. I wanted to keep sure. it to um, 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 Montana, especially, but also wilderness, which I'm really, you know, I I love wilderness areas. I love the pureness of them, um, and just how like you can't really do anything other than foot or horse, you know. Um, and so that was a big one for me. Um, the other one I'm doing is is Teddy Roosevelt's conservation partnership. Yeah. Um, and that one was just uh, another one. Just really liked kind of their mission and I, I still actually need to dive in more about what they're about 
Um, that was one that Jared recommended to me, and I, you know, from his brief kind of synopsis, I really liked it. Um, and that's one I want to kind of dive headfirst into really learning more about them. Um, but I kind of have an idea to kind of change it every year a little bit and go with some different ones and play around with it. But because it's, uh, I had a hard time picking two <laughs> for for this year, and I wanted to stick to two this year. I know I can do more, but I wanted to stick to two, and. Um, those were uh, two that really stuck out to me for my for my first years, kind of. Uh... Well, no, I mean, and that's great too because one, keeping you know your your time and your dollars local there to Montana, I think is is a beautiful thing. Whenever someone's kind of giving back to, uh, you know, where they're spending all their time doing their recreating, right? You know, if if you're kind of taking from the land, you should absolutely be trying to give back to it uh, as well. And then you know, with TRCP, you know, they're they're. I don't even know. I mean, I had um, someone from TRCP on um, on the podcast back in October, and we got to. I got a much better understanding of what it is that they do. Right? That you know, not only um, are they you know lobbying for you know public lands and, and and you know rights and all this stuff for hunters and anglers and just really the kind of the outdoor recreationist recreationist in general. But they're also in where the partnership side comes in, you know, helping other conservation organizations, um, you know, move the needle with certain things that that they are working for as well. So, you know, like a a Ducks Unlimited or a Pheasants Forever, you know, working to help them um, with their agenda as long as, you know, it kind of, you know, lines up with theirs. But using their um, kind of Rolodex, I guess, uh, in in terms of being able to to help, um, you know, those organizations continue to do what they do as well. Definitely. Yeah, no, that was important. I think that's kind of why I wanted to kind of do one from one basket, one from the other, like one a little more local yeah. and, and more concentrated. And then one kind of a lot more broad um, and more of a, you know, bigger reach kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, I kind of wanted to kind of a little bit of, a little bit of both. Uh, so I thought about sticking both with, with two Montana organizations and then kind of last second pulled the trigger and decided to do it this way. But uh, you know, who knows what, what next year I'll bring, but that's where I wanted to start with. Yeah. And here I am like kind of like borderline, like grilling you like, so who are you working with? What are you doing? And you've been certified for like five minutes, right? Like you just, <laughs> your name just popped up, uh, uh, you know, like less than a month ago, right? Totally. No, it's all, and like I just said, it's all new and I'm really excited about it. I'm excited to be on board and to learn more about the nitty gritty of it. You know, I've yeah. always kind of, uh, I've always kind of treated it like I treat, photography and everything else where I've kind of like lone wolfed a lot of stuff and just kind of been off doing, doing my own thing for, for so long. And so, um, joining up with, with organizations that know a lot more than I do, um, and know a lot more about how to be effective. Um, is great because, you know, for me, I've always just, I've, I've always had a, a pretty large social reach. Um, and I've tried to always use that for messaging, for good messaging, public land messaging, yeah. um, support of public lands and, and, and things like that, support of conservation. Um, public lands being a big one, you know, and I, I've gotten a lot of flack for it on the internet because I post things of public lands uh, and I'm, you know, I'm not here giving away anybody's hunting spot or anybody's fishing spot, but I'll post a national forest or a national park even and people will be like, stop sharing Glacier. I'm like, look, Glacier is not a secret. No, you know? <laughs> you know? and it's not it's at like, all. And and people get mad at me for for sharing, and it's it's funny because the uh, the idea of somebody getting mad at me for for sharing the outdoors, um, you know, I feel like if we all ignore the outdoors, and you don't share that, how are you going to inspire anybody to 
take up the reins and we're all dead and gone, right? Yeah, you know? absolutely. If we're, if we're all secret about it and like, oh no, like, don't talk about hunting, don't talk about the outdoors, there's too many people doing it already, well then, who's going to carry the torch? You yeah, know? And, I th- and I think that's crazy. Like, So I have uh, a good amount of friends who, who do some type of hunting or angling, and I have a good amount of friends who, who just don't, right? But when I'm with my friends that don't, I don't shut up about it. I'm always like, oh, like if you're ever interested, like oh. I'll take you out, you know, all this stuff. Yep. Like, and it's like, I just couldn't imagine not talking about right. it. Right. For sure. When I do a lot of, I cook a lot and I cook a lot of, you know, game and I'll have friends over who don't hunt and who don't fish and things like that. And it's like the whole time we're eating whatever I harvested, I'm like proudly telling them yeah. that this is something that, you know, was wild and, and, was properly harvested and it's like trying to encourage like if you're ever interested in coming out like let's do it let's go let's go duck hunting let's go goose hunting you know and uh i've got my between my dad and i we got enough gear we can outfit you like we can just go do it right and those are ones that are especially if you have uh you know people who are willing to take you that have you know the decoys or the waders you know they have the stuff or an extra shotgun right like the barrier to entry for those things if you know the right people is super low right you don't have to be you don't have to buy a bow and, you know, shoot your bow for eight months out of the year just to be proficient when the time comes. Like, hit, you know, hit the clay pigeons for a day and be like, all right, I got it. I'm good. Sweet. Easy. Yeah. yeah. No, for sure. And that's my dad and I were actually talking about that last night and how the the barrier to hunting if you're if you don't know anybody is tough. You know, if, if you don't know a single person and, and a, a cousin of mine has been um, grilling my dad for like the last three months about hunting because he want, he's, he's never hunted and he really wants to get into it. My dad's been very supportive and, and wanting to, you know, have him get into it and have him come to Montana and go hunting, you know, and, and, um, and like teach him, right? Because yeah. it is like, if you didn't know anybody and if, if nobody ever offered it to you, like how do you even, you know, if, if my dad hadn't got back into it and, and had I not known Paul or anything like that, like, I don't know if I would have ever gotten into it because I just never would have had the opportunity to. Yeah. And it's tough too. So like even, you know, again, you don't know anyone so you, maybe you go to a local bow shop or gun store and even a gun store is, you know, not the right place probably to necessarily find someone that hunts, but, or you go to like a sporting goods store, you go somewhere where you think, Hey, maybe there's some people here who hunt. Maybe I can talk to someone or befriend someone like, as you know, a an older gentleman or you know someone in their forties or fifty, like that's tough, right? To just right. You know, go up to someone and be like, "Hey, do you do you hunt? Cool, totally. teach me, yeah. right?" Like that's that that can be difficult for a lot of people, for sure. And like I know my dad's in like a bunch of Facebook groups and like Billings and like Montana various Montana you know bird hunting groups and stuff like that. And he's always offering to help people out because people will be like, you know, I want to just go hunting and I've never been like, can somebody show me or, you know, just tell me what I need to do. But like, it's hard, especially, you know, for, for waterfowl is like, if you don't have your spots, if you don't know anything, right. like he's going to go to a fishing access and just stand there and hopefully some birds come in. Yeah. Cause you, <laughs> if you don't know any of the other stuff, you damn well can't call. Right. Right. You know, you're just kind of like standing there just like, well, I hope a goose flies in low enough <laughs> take it out that's gonna land in the river and then you're gonna be like well there it goes it's floating down river you know you're not gonna be able to get it out yeah this this honey uh, thing's not for me yeah it's like but if you have somebody with you know good dogs and and good spots good blinds and you know they quickly learn how much fun it is and how much 
it's an enjoyable experience. And yeah. as we talked about earlier, it's a very social experience too. You know, yeah. it's a yeah. bonding, really good bonding experience. Which can certainly uh, aid in the retention of, of, you know, new hunters too. Like if that's, if their first experience is something, you know, not whitetail hunting, right? Not sitting in a tree by yourself for, you know, five, six, ten hours, you know, a day in complete solitude. Now, don't get me wrong. I enjoy that. But if that was my first experience to hunting, I'd be like, I don't know. This might not be for me. For sure. It's like, go sit in a tree stand for 15 hours when it's 20 below. And you're like, yeah, I don't know if this is it. <laughs> no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's gotta be something else <laughs> yeah, yeah like I'm just gonna stare at the other tree for 12 hours and just well there it is that's a tree you know yeah this is hunting all right yeah. um great so, yeah Good. so andy before i let you get out of here man i know you obviously you just spent uh the month in chile what's kind of the the next big thing on the horizon uh you know what are some some big trips that you kind of have you know maybe coming up that you're looking forward to yeah, so we'll see. I, I've got a trip uh, coming up. I'm home for a little bit now, which is nice. Um, and then uh, I'm going to be heading to possibly, I mean, I've got to confirm it, so hopefully I don't jinx it by saying it, but I'm, I'm hopefully heading to Columbia uh, in in May. Um, and then uh, that'll be working with the Colombian government on a biodiversity project. It'll be really okay. interesting. Awesome. Um, so, yeah, it'd be, really, it'd be a really cool project. It's like... Um, because I've done a lot of tourism stuff, obviously, but it's it's kind of this fun hybrid of like it's tourism, but it's also a tourism uh, conservation project, basically. Okay. Um, so I'm working with uh, a lot of locals, and we'll be up way up in the in the rainforest on the Venezuelan border, kind of just like we're no man's land, like nobody ever goes there. Um, and there's some small little villages up there, and basically telling a story about biodiversity, but also human interaction with biodiversity and kind of those sort of things. Um, so it's, it's not officially booked yet, but it's, we're, we're finalizing a lot of deals right now. So heading there, uh, hopefully, hopefully next month. And then after that's over is when I'll be in what I call peak season for me, which is I'll be in Montana and Wyoming for the rest of, uh, the rest of summer. So, um, between late May through October, I'll be pretty heavy in, uh, in Montana and Wyoming. I've got my van, so I'll just travel around to the super remote parts of both states and and capturing the little nooks and crannies that I can find but that'll be most of summer so nice yeah right on that's awesome hopefully well, heading to Africa in the, in the in the winter so that'll be the next that's yeah, a big that's, one it's been canceled four times now so I, I'm <laughs> Just waiting for it to actually happen. <laughs> yeah. No, I look forward to, uh, assuming that that does happen, I look forward to seeing uh, some photos from that. That'll be pretty epic. Yeah, definitely. Uh, where can people find you? On Instagram or Facebook, you know, any of the, the socials? Yeah, so pretty much any social media you can think of, it's all the same. It's just Andy Austin Photo. Uh, and then my, my website is just andyaustinphoto.com. So all it's, it's all the same, whatever you want to do. So it's all Andy Austin Photo. Easy nah. as that. Not Montana peak per pictures or photos or whatever. Photographyofmontana.com. Actually, if you go to that, it'll still, I think, redirect to my website. So I still own the domain name 10 years later. It's kind of like a consolation prize. There you go. An older. So Awesome. Well, Andy, thanks a ton, man, for joining me. I really enjoyed this. Uh, getting to hear, you know, your story, your journey to, you know, into the world of photography and conservation and you know, where you're at now with everything. Uh, it, it was super fun. I enjoyed it, man. 
a pleasure to have it. It's been a pleasure to be on the, the call and, and uh, yeah, looking forward to another call again someday. Yeah, absolutely, man. We'll uh, sharing a beer here in person one of these days. Yeah, no. Uh, if I get out that way, or if you for some reason decide to do some uh, uh, photo work for tourism in the state of Michigan, look me up, man. Absolutely, let me Sounds know you're coming. I got a whole, I got a whole bucket of stats waiting for you here. So, <laughs> my man. All right, Andy, awesome. take care of yourself, man. We'll talk to you soon. Cool. Thanks for having me. All right, take care. All right. Well, thanks again to Andy for taking some time to join me today. I would also like to thank the partners of the podcast, Stone Glacier and Wild Rivers Coffee, as well as 2% for Conservation. And if you're interested in learning more about 2% for Conservation, you can visit their website, fishandwildlife.org. And over there, you can see all the certified brands that have committed to conservation that you should support when you shop. I also encourage you guys to give 2% a follow on social media where it's going to be only positive conservation-driven content that uh, shows up in your feeds, so you'll definitely enjoy that. So again, if you'd like to learn more about 2% for Conservation, you can look for them online on social media or at fishandwildlife.org. Thanks for joining me this week, everyone. Be sure and head over to theaverageconservationist.com. Check out uh, past podcast episodes as well as um, some merchandise and some gear uh, that you can pick up that uh, helps support conservation in the process. So, as always, stay safe out there, have a happy Easter, and remember that conservation starts with you.